comments about halfway through, but I must emphasize I'm not I'm not a C.S. Lewis expert, so don't regard me as an authority. There may be some of you know who know more than I do, but uh, if anyone has anything they want to ask or comment, uh, you can type that into the chat anytime. I won't necessarily um, pick it up while I'm speaking, but I'll try and address anything uh, about halfway through. And then I'm going to, in the second half, I'm going to focus specifically on Narnia, which I guess is probably the, the, the C.S. Lewis's writings that most people are are more familiar with and certainly his most accessible writings. But I just thought as we began, obviously with this number of people, we're up to about 60 participants, 60 devices, so we can't really have a, a conversation between us. But it'd be, it'd be quite helpful to know um, roughly how much you know about C.S. Lewis and how much you've read about him. So if, if you're able to, you obviously don't have to do this, but if you want to just type into the chat just sort of an indication of what you've read um, even if it was years ago. And then that just helps me to, to know sort of just how to pitch it. So you might, you might have read absolutely no C.S. Lewis. You might have seen some of the Narnia films or you might be a complete, you know, devotee. But um, if you want to just type that into the chat and just give us an idea um, of your experience of Lewis, that would be great. And uh, just to say one thing, a few, a few people who can't make it tonight asked me if we could record this. So we are planning to record it. In fact, I think uh, Trudy's turned the recording on. So just so that you're aware of that, this is being recorded. Um, it will be put on YouTube, but it won't be put in a format that people can just find it. You'll have to, people will have to be sent the link to be able to see it. Um, but if you're showing your screen, it's, it's possible that a glimpse of your face uh, might appear on that video. So I hope that's okay with everybody. Uh, and obviously, if you ask a question or so, we, we might pause the recording when we have questions, but uh, there's obviously a risk you might appear on that. So I hope that's okay. Um, just a bit of background as to why I'm doing this now. So I've I've uh, I read C.S. Lewis as a teenager. I, I didn't particularly read the Narnia books when I was a kid. I think I might have read one or two of them, but I mainly started as a teenager with with some of his more works like Mere Christianity and Screwtape Letters and so on. And, so on. Uh, and it wasn't really it wasn't until quite recently that I read all the Narnia Chronicles. Uh, I remember when I started my first job. Um, in my early 20s, uh, for some reason, they had this sort of psychological test that we all had to do. And one of the one of the questions, and goodness knows why they asked this, was if, if you had if you could choose who to sit next to at dinner, um, who could it be? You know, anyone alive or dead? And I put C.S. Lewis. And I don't particularly know why I put that at the time, but I remember doing it. And I've no idea what they made of it. No one ever commented or came back on me on it. But um, it must have it must have he must have meant something to me at the time. Uh, and then the reason I'm doing this now is because I'm doing some I'm doing a postgrad course and I'm just writing my final dissertation. And as part of that, I'm, I'm researching an aspect of C.S. Lewis's writing. So I've read I've read most of his Christian writings in the last few months. So I, and I don't have a very good memory. So I'm just thinking, well, before I forget everything, I might as well just sort of get this out there and show and share something. So that's sort of um, the background of this evening. Now, let me just look at the chat and say, um, see what people have written. So um, quite a few references to Narnia. Oh, someone's read the Out of the Silent Planet series, which is impressive because they're not very well known. Uh, Narnia, Screwtape, Grief Observed, Surprised by Joy, uh, or oh, Another Voyage to Venus. That's one of that series as well. Narnia, Narnia. Oh, someone wrote an essay on uh, Liz wrote an essay on him in her third year at um, theological college. So, um, Liz, you, you can tell us a bit about that later if you like. Um, more Narnia, Screw Tape, Near Christianity. Um, yeah, so I think Narnia, as I expected, 
um, is the most popular. Most people who have said anything have mentioned Narnia, but obviously some of his uh, Christian writings like um, Screwtape and uh, Mere Christianity also popular. So let's get in now and let me give you a bit of um, a bit of background about C.S. Lewis. So I'm going to share my screen again. Right. So let me give you some a sort of basic chronology of Lewis's life. Uh, apologies if this is very familiar to some of you, but I think it helps us to orientate us uh, in terms of what happened when. So Lewis was born in 1898 in Belfast, Clive Staples Lewis, but he was also he was always known to his family and friends as Jack for reasons nobody's quite sure about. It's thought that he probably chose that himself, primarily because he didn't really like his his actual names. And he had quite a difficult childhood. His mother died when he was quite young. She died of cancer. And that was obviously, a, uh, as you would expect, a very significant um, event for him. And his, his relationship with his father doesn't seem to have been particularly warm. And he was sent off to boarding school in England, uh, along with his elder brother, Warney. But um, boarding school didn't seem to go very well for Lewis. Uh, kind of reading between the lines, you get the sense that he was probably bullied at school. He was obviously an intellectual. Um, he wasn't sort of very physical in the sense of being good at sport and that kind of thing. And his father eventually took him out of boarding school and sent him to live with a private tutor, uh, also in England, um, known as the Great Knock. I think he was a retired schoolmaster. And one of the significant things about the great Nock was that he was a, a quite a strident atheist. And although I don't think uh, Lewis had been brought up in a particularly religious home, he did have some vestiges of Christian belief, um, but, but Nock knocked that out of him. And um, he came out of um, his, his schooling um, as an atheist. And that, that Situation was probably confirmed by the fact that he then he, he got into Oxford uh, to read uh, classics, but really barely had he started than the First World War began and he signed up and he, he went off to fight and uh, obviously pretty awful experiences. Uh, and he did actually get injured in the First World War uh, and was hospitalised and, and came home to, to England or to, to Ireland, I guess. Uh, and then after the war, um, uh, he, he restarted his career, um, you know, his, his student life at Oxford. Obviously, he was, a, he was a very bright student. He studied classics. He also studied philosophy and uh, English literature. And he became, once he'd, once he'd graduated, he was then offered a job as a, as a tutor in English. Uh, he first of all taught some philosophy at University College, but then he became a tutor in English at Magdalen College, where he spent most of his career from 1925 for about the next 30 years. Uh, he taught primarily English, a bit of philosophy uh, there at Oxford. And then in 1931, so at this point he was in his early 30s, he was converted to Christianity. He gave up his atheism. And it, he, he writes about this in one of his books at some length, or two of his books, really, I'll come on to that, but particularly in the book Surprised by Joy. And his conversion to Christianity was in two stages. Firstly, he converted, he, he changed his view from being an atheist to being a theist, so someone who believes there is no God to someone who believes there is a God. And then a year or so later, he, he converted from 
from theism, which is a sort of general belief that there is a God somewhere out there, to Christianity. He believed that Jesus Christ was the son of God, that he died and rose again, and he committed his life to God uh, in the early 1930s. And the reasons for this are quite complicated, but they, they're, they're, a lot of their background is in the fact that, that uh, Lewis studied philosophy and a lot of the reasons he gives for his conversion are philosophical reasons around um, believing in God, making more sense of the universe. He didn't really, he, he came to the conclusion that it was hard to believe in morality, that it was hard to believe in right and wrong, that it was even hard to believe in reason and being able to reason unless you thought that there was something outside us, that they, unless you believe there is a God there uh, and that somehow to some, in some way we're answerable to that God. And the, the other aspect of Lewis coming to faith was a, was a more emotional thing. Uh, he talks about uh, from his earliest childhood, he had this sense of longing, of, of an awareness that there was something that he, he somehow sometimes caught glimpses of, which he sometimes refers to as joy. But he doesn't mean joy in terms of happiness. He means joy in terms of sort of an awareness that there's something beautiful and glorious out there that occasionally I catch glimpses of it. And when I catch those glimpses, even though they're beyond my grasp, it's so wonderful and beautiful that I know I've been made for that. Uh, and, he, and he used to use the word, the German word, Sehnsucht, which I, I gather means basically longing. Uh, and this was significant because he realized um, that actually the, the, the God of the Christian God uh, was the, 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 the culmination of this thing that he'd longed for all his life and the fulfillment of something that he'd seen in the various mythologies that he'd studied. I mean, Lewis was an expert in, in ancient literature and he studied Norse legends and all this sort of thing. And he saw all these as pointing towards that they're myths that had truth in them. But it was when he examined the Christian message in the Gospels that he thought, yes, this is the true myth. This is the thing that makes sense of everything else. I've, I've expressed all that very briefly, not particularly well, but you can see his conversion was a very well thought out thing, but it also engaged his, his emotions and his imagination. So that was in, in the early 1930s. Uh, worth um, mentioning that uh, during his time at Oxford, he became very good friends with uh, a number of people, several of whom were, were Christians before he was, uh, including, of course, Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, and so on. He was a, a, a close friend of Tolkien, and him and, and they and a few others used to meet regularly um, in the pubs and in their rooms in Oxford. They had a little sort of club, which they called the Inklings, and they would talk about philosophy and religion, uh, and they'd debate and they'd thrash out these things between them. Um, obviously, the Second World War um, began and uh, Lewis was was too old for to be called up for that. But he was invited to give a series of talks on, on the BBC, on the radio uh, about Christianity, about aspects of Christian belief. And they picked Lewis because they wanted someone who wasn't a recognised religious figure. They didn't want a bishop or, or a professional theologian. They want someone who they felt could, was sort of outside the religious establishment, who could somehow encourage people during wartime, give them the Christian message in a way that would connect with them. So uh, Lewis started recording these, well, started giving these radio broadcasts. They're only about 10 or 15 minutes each, and I think the first series was eight, 
And they were so popular and they went so well that he did a, a, a four of these series during the Second World War, these, these broadcast radio talks. Sadly, in those days, the BBC didn't used to record these talks. So they, we don't have the actual recordings of them. But after the war, uh, what they, were, they were published in individual volumes. And then eventually all four of them were published together in what uh, in the book that we now know as Mere Christianity. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But they were basic, Mere Christianity is basically these wartime radio talks. In 1950, the first Narnia book was published. And I'll talk more about that uh, later on. And then in 1955, Lewis was appointed uh, professor at Cambridge University. One of the interesting things about Lewis and the fact that he did these radio talks and that he published children's books was that this was not the done thing for an Oxford Don. And the, the Oxford establishment at that time was very traditional and quite stuffy. And they didn't really approve of Lewis being a Christian. They didn't approve of him writing all these popular books and going on the radio. And so he was never offered a professorship at Oxford. But relatively late in life, he became a professor at Cambridge, although he still lived in Oxford and used to sort of commute there um, uh, when he was working there. So that's 1955. Um, many of you, if you've seen the play or the film Shadowlands, will know that uh, late in life, I mean, Lewis was regarded as a confirmed bachelor. He really was in, in his behaviour, very sort of bachelor-like. But he married uh, an American lady called Joy Davidman very late in, well, quite late in life. Um, he was in his late 50s. And uh, the, sadly, the marriage didn't last very long because within uh, quite a short time of their marriage, Joy um, was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, and although she went into remission for a while, uh, she died in 1960. So less than four years uh, they'd been married when, when she died. And that was obviously devastating for Lewis. And, and he writes about that, uh, particularly in, in one of his books. And then uh, Lewis died in 1963, just a week before his 65th birthday. So there's a sort of um, outline of his life. If you are interested in, in, know, in knowing more about C.S. Lewis, there's a number of biographies. I'd, be, I'd particularly remen, recommend, uh, I think it's the most recent one. It's by Alastair McGrath, uh, who many of you will have heard of, quite a well-known Christian order author, also an Oxford academic, C.S. Lewis, A Life. Uh, quite a, quite accessible um, and and a good description of a good overview of of Lewis's life. Um, let me talk now a little bit about his writings and let me give you a flavour of some of uh, Lewis's his major writings. So I'll put my my screen on again, and I've grouped them. I've grouped them into four areas, and these groupings are these are my groupings. They're a bit arbitrary and. Uh, Arguably, some place, some books should be in different places. And these are by no means all his books. I'm, I'm mentioning some of the perhaps more well-known ones. So, so Lewis wrote three works of which could be regarded as autobiographical. Uh, he wrote, very soon after his conversion, he wrote a rather peculiar book called The Pilgrim's Regress, which was sort of in the style of The Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's famous book. And it's, a, it's an allegorical description of Lewis's journey to faith. It's, I think he realised afterwards that it was a bit of a, a mistake to do it that way. Uh, it's, it's not a particularly easy read. You have, to be, you have to have quite a lot of understanding of other sort of 
um, contemporary figures and philosophical and, and other writers to sort of get everything that's going on. So it's, it's not particularly common unless you're a real sort of Lewis ad addict. Uh, so later in the 50s, he published a, a more accessible ver version, uh, Surprised by Joy, uh, which is basically also a story of his coming to faith. And Joy, Joy is not, the Joy in the title of that book is not Joy, his wife. They weren't married at this point. Uh, joy is this is this longing thing. It's this sensucht. It's this sense that there's something that, that's beyond me that I know. And I it's so wonderful that I want it, but I haven't got it yet. And and that's if you read the book, you, you, he talks a lot about that because it's one of the things that that drew him to faith in God. The sense he, he writes this, I think, in mere Christianity. Um, if you get the feeling sometimes that you're that you're made for something beyond this world, it's because you are made for something beyond this world. He, he put it better than that. I haven't quite got the quote right. But uh, he talks about that in Surprised by Joy. And then late in life, uh, after the death of his wife, he wrote he writes this really short and raw book a grief observed about his experience of bereavement. So those are the more autobiographical books. There's then a series of books, probably amongst his most famous books, are what uh, are called apologetics. So apologetics is a, a form of literature, an, an ancient form of literature, which basically means defending, defending the Christian faith. And uh, a number of Lewis's books come into this category. He's not necessarily trying to persuade people to be Christians, but he's trying to deal with some of the stumbling blocks and some of the objections that people make. And so, for example, the, the first book in this category, The Problem of Pain, or as we might call it, The Problem of Suffering, uh, he deals with that. And he deals with it in quite philosophical and logical terms, but he uses language that's quite accessible. Uh, screw tape letters. Now, I've highlighted why have I highlighted two in blue? Uh, well, I've highlighted them partly because I'm going to give you some quotes. But actually, if, if you want, if you've never read any Lewis and you want to start somewhere, uh, the ones I've put in blue would be quite good places to start. So um, screw tape letters is this uh, really clever, imaginative uh, description. Well, it's a series of letters from a, a senior devil to a junior devil. And, and basically, it's a book about temptation, but written from the other side, so to speak. Uh, so it's not it's not, you know, typically if you go to church, you might be encouraged not to be tempted. Uh, to, uh, it, but this book looks at things from the point of view of the tempter. And it, it's really cleverly and entertainingly done. It's obviously quite a dark subject, but it's tackled really, really beautifully. And I would recommend the screw tape letters. Let me just give you uh, a, a sense of this. I'll read you a, 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 the ending of one of his letters. And I think as well as seeing it, he, that he writes very entertainingly, you also see Lewis didn't mince his words. He didn't avoid difficult subjects. He was he thought Christianity was something you needed to take really seriously. You couldn't just mess around with it. So um, here's uh, something from Screwtape Letters. Let me just find the place. Uh, he's, he's talking. So this is the senior devil talking to the junior devil. And he's talking about temptation. And he's saying that it, by, by all means, focus on some quite small things. You will say and now, now I quote, you will say that these are very small sins and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. And when he says the enemy, he's talking about God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light 
and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than card games if card games can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Quite chilling in a way, isn't it? He puts his finger on uh, an important point, which perhaps some of us like to skirt round, which is actually temptation starts in small ways and it's trying to drive a wedge between us and God. Um, Miracles, he he wrote a book about miracles. Uh, Let me, uh, in view of time, I'll just give you a quote from um, Mere Christianity. Now, this is perhaps the most famous quote in Mere Christianity. It's the so-called liar, lunatic or or Lord argument. So he's saying he's talking about Jesus Christ and he's saying, what do you think of Jesus? And he says very typically direct and and, um, uh, graphic Lewis language. I'm trying here, he says, to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as the great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the same level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his on his you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. So there you are, that's apologetics for you. Uh, Let me go on now. So then he wrote some books, uh, which I've called fiction slash fantasy. Uh, And I was pleasantly surprised to see that some of you have read the Ransom books. So the Ransom books are a trilogy of sort of science fiction, but not not sort of um, not sort of scientific science fiction. But they're they're thought experiments. Lewis is trying to grapple with the question of of where did sin and evil come from? Uh, what if there, what if there were intelligent human beings on another planet somewhere out in the cosmos? Um, what would their experience would be? Would they would they struggle with sin? Would they need a savior? I, personally, I don't particularly like the Ransom books, but don't let me put you off having a go at them. But they're not his most accessible books by any means. A book that is quite accessible but t- tackles a difficult subject is The Great Divorce, and The Great Divorce. It's based around a, what is in a way rather an amusing concept, but not really, which is it imagines a, a day trip, a bus trip for the day of people going from hell to heaven. And they go to heaven and they meet some people in heaven. But the, the point of the book really is that at the end of the day, everybody chooses to get back on the bus and go back to the other place. And it, it can, again contains a famous quote which is Lewis says, God, God never forces anybody to go to hell. God says to people, your will be done. If that's, if that's the place you want to go, I'm not going to stop you. But again, it, it's written a bit like screw tape letters in a very creative way. Uh, Narnia Books, of course, is, is I'm sure Lewis's most accessible collection. I'll, I'll come back to that later. And then uh, what I've called more spiritual in the sense that they're aimed more at Christians. And these are books he, tends, he tended to write later in his life. Uh, he wrote, there are some, 
there are a number of collections of his writings, uh, many of which were published after he died. But one that was published during his lifetime is a collection called uh, The Weight of Glory. And um, The Weight of Glory is a collection of essays. But uh, let me just again, let me give you a taste of one of them. He's talking about he's talking about the weight of glory and about how that we are um, potentially amazingly glorious creatures and God's purposes for us. Uh, is, is, is glory, that we will be in glory, but actually we will also be glorious. Um, let me read you just a quick quote. The, lo the load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you want, such as now you meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. And then he says a, a few lines down. Um, the most holy object you will ever experience in this life are, are other people, because we are we have the potential to be uh, incredibly glorious. These these glorious beings that we will be tempted to worship. So uh, that's the way to glory. And then there are three other books that are relatively well known, I suppose, uh, a book on love, the four loves, a book on the Psalms in the Bible and a book, his final book, a book on prayer. So oh, we'll come back to Narnia in a minute. So um, I'll stop sharing now. Uh, time is ticking on. Let me just give you a few overall themes on from C.S. Lewis. So uh, what, what overall, if we look at his writings and stand back from them, what are the themes that sort of stand out uh, compared to other authors? Well, firstly, uh, he, his background in philosophy meant that he did he, he knew how to construct a very logical argument. And he believed that the Christian faith was something very reasonable. It, he didn't think faith was a leap into the dark. He thought that faith was based on reason and logic. But obviously there was then a next step as we as we as we as we walk forward into the hands of God. Uh, and he saw his he writes in the introduction to mere Christianity that actually he felt his calling was to help people to see the reasonableness of the Christian faith. And one thing that one of the things you, you, you notice as you read Lewis is that he has a very sort of common sense way of writing. He, he draws you in and he, he becomes sort of almost conspiratorial. You know, we, 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 we can see things like this. We can see this is obvious. Uh, and he cr cr creates these very easy to follow arguments although sometimes they're a little bit dated uh, sometimes uh, the illustrations he uses are, are quite old-fashioned uh, I think even by his own standards even by the standards of the 1940s and 1950s Lewis was quite old-fashioned and he liked old books and he liked he, he, he had sort of he had you know he'd make side swipes at things like vegetarianism or co-educational co schools even in the chronicles of Narnia he will make side swipes at things like vegetarians and people school teachers in in these nasty co-educational schools which all sounds a bit nonsense to us today but that he was a bit he was a bit sort of old-fashioned in some of these ways uh, I've mentioned this this idea of joy of sensucht of longing um, Lewis was a great um, admirer of the of the great Christian Augustine 
Augustine of Hippo. Uh, uh, and you may know probably the most famous quote of Augustine is God made us for himself. And um, we are we, we have this we have this emptiness in us until we find ourselves in God. And I think this is what he meant really by sensucht. We 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 know something in us is tell, tells us that there's something beyond us. And and even in our even even the sense that we're missing out on it is the best thing in life. And all the other things that we we think we long for and we try them, we find they don't work and they, they take us back all the time. So that's actually this deeper desire um, for God. And we see this in Narnia. In fact, let me I'm jumping ahead, but let me give you a quote from Narnia. So this is the first time. If you read the if you read the Narnia Chronicles in the order in which they were published, I'll come on to the order in which to read them later. If you read them in the order in which they're published, this is the first time we meet Aslan. In fact, we don't meet him. This is the first time he's mentioned. So he's mentioned by, um, you know, the Beaver family. And he and Lewis says, and now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the Beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as if it has some enormous meaning, either a terrifying one which turns the whole dream into a nightmare or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realise it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. You see what Lewis is trying to do? He's trying to create within us this feeling that even the name of Aslan creates this this longing for more of him and the sense that he's fulfilling something that we spent all our lives waiting for. Uh, so that's another point. Um, now, now, why did he call his book Mere Christianity? Well, when he when he used the word mere, Lewis didn't he wasn't using it in a sort of derogatory sense. He was he was really meaning basic Christianity. He was trying to say this isn't a particular version of Christianity. This isn't Anglicanism. This isn't Catholicism. This isn't anything else. This is this is the Christianity that all Christians believe. And he was trying to make it very all embracing and general. And he, he was quite passionate about this, although he was himself an Anglican and a relatively high church Anglican. He felt he wanted to write for everybody. And he and he wasn't very interested in things that divided Christians from one another. And I think that's why his writings, in a way, have had such enduring value, because he's emphasized the common things and he avoided getting into things that he saw as divisive. And uh, he, he would regard them as second order. Of course, uh, not everyone would agree with him that they were second order, but he would regard um, them as that. He did have a very high view of scripture. He wasn't in any sense a liberal. And in those days, the theological establishment was very liberal. Those of you, uh, a few of you I know um, watching have got sort of theological training and stuff. And you'll know that, you know, the 1950s, this was the height of the sort of, you know, Baltimore and so on. And the Bible's all, a, the Gospels are all a myth, a myth in the sense of, well, it didn't really happen. And we need to get behind that to what really happened. And Lewis said, well, that's all a load of rubbish. You people have obviously not, you're not used to reading literature. You're not used to reading something that looks like these Gospels and, and realizing what they really are. And he had he had no time for those sort of um, demythologizing views of scripture. 
um, he was, I've already mentioned this, he was in some sense quite austere. He did, he felt that Christianity was something you really had to go for and give your whole life to. Um, and some of the perceptions that he brings us, I mean, you heard my reading from um, Screwtape just now, they, they can make us feel quite uncomfortable. They can be quite challenging towards us. He didn't mince his words. And um, personally, I think that's a good thing. But he, don't, don't read Lewis if you don't want to be challenged a bit, if you don't want to be made slightly uncomfortable. And I think, actually, you know, is, is my life really measuring up to what it should be? He did tackle difficult subjects. He talked a lot about heaven and hell and demons. He believed they were very real places and he thought they were very significant. And, um, yeah, he, he, he didn't shy away from topics that perhaps nowadays a lot of people would shy away from. He, I've mentioned this already, he was very uh, influenced by ancient literature, ancient mythology, and he saw a mythical aspect in Christianity, which, I and I don't mean by that any sense that it wasn't true, because he believed it was absolutely true, but he saw within it a, a fulfillment of all the many myths that cultures around the world have, and he said, well, Christianity is the true myth, which all those other myths sort of feed into and have elements of truth in. But here is a myth about a good God who comes to save people and ultimately will redeem the whole of creation. By, and, and he did this by sacrificing himself. And we see little glimpses of that in other pagan myths. But in, in Christianity, it's where all these things come together and we see the myth in all its fullness. And, and the other thing, finally, really, before I give you the chance to come in with any comments or questions, uh, Lewis was was... I mean, he was so well read. He was so he was a really clever communicator. And when you read him, his writing is just dripping with clever illustrations. He he wants you to see things for yourself. And he I mean, if, if many of you I know go to church and you listen to sermons and you've probably been plagued with preachers who tell you some great long story anecdote and they want you to laugh and you and you get to the end and you think, well, what was that? What was the point of that? And you, and you don't get that with Lewis. The, 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 the description is always to help you see beyond it to the thing that he's really trying to point you towards. Let me give you a, a very brief example, quite a famous example. Again, this is from the book, um, The Weight of Glory, but it's another article in that book. And uh, this is quite famous. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. You see that he's saying Christianity is I, I look at it and I see it and it's wonderful. But actually, it's the thing that enables me to see everything else. It's the thing that makes sense of everything else. And it's, it's a very simple illustration, you might say. But you read his writings and they're sort of dripping with all this almost boom, 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 one after the other. And you think he's, he either must have taken years to write each paragraph or else he was just it just automatically came out of him. And I think it was probably more the latter. Now, I'm getting quite dry in the mouth. So um, maybe uh, if has anyone got any comments or questions, you can either, um, Trudy, you could let people unmute themselves for a bit. We'll, we'll allow you to speak. That's very kind, isn't it? And uh, or you can write stuff into your into your chat. Um, as I say, I'm, I don't pretend to be the expert on Lewis, but if you've got any comments, I mean, you're allowed to say you think you think I've got it wrong. Um, that's OK. Uh, but if, if anyone got any questions or observations or what's been your experience of Lewis, what, what are the things that stood out for you? If you remember reading him, maybe even as a child, um, what made you want to go back? What made you want to come to this talk this evening? Um, I'm just chattering on to fill in the time while you're, cause I'm assuming you're all typing away there. 
uh, very busily. Silence. Otherwise, I'll just go on, I suppose, but. No? Okay, well, someone's been very nice enough to say that they're thoroughly enjoying it, so that's good. Um, what more of those comments are, are also welcome. Um, they, they just sent that to me, so you didn't see that one. Never mind. But uh, okay, no one's got anything else. Well, that's fine. Well, I'll, I'll plow on now, shall I? And then we'll, we'll have more opportunity for for comments and questions at the end. I'm still hoping to get them to land more or less at uh, eight thirty. So I think we're we're roughly on track for that. Uh, so let me I'll share my screen again. Oh, hold on, done that wrong. Right. Oh, hold on. Someone's written something. Let me let me come back. So Ben, Ben's, Ben's one of our church uh, leaders. Uh, ben says the great divorce is a lot more than fantasy, theologically and morally rich, too. Also bizarre. Yes, I agree. Um, it, it is very rich. And he has he has um, I mean, he takes to task. For example, there's a there's a scene in The Great Divorce. So remember, The Great Divorce is this this bus trip from hell to heaven. And uh, one of the characters on this bus uh, is actually a bishop. So so you have to get so Lewis is writing as an Anglican, but but the bishop is on the bus from hell. So um, uh, apologies to any of you who are Anglicans. But um, uh, the, the Anglican, he's a very liberal bishop and he's 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 far too sophisticated to actually believe that the Gospels are true or anything like that. And he's very upset to find people in heaven who still think that, who are so unenlightened. But of course, at the end of the day, he gets back on the bus. Um, so it's quite amusing. But he, he makes a number of these points. Right. Uh, we're warming up now. So somebody has said something else. Right. So we've got a question about Narnia. So if I could leave that for now, um, Philip, uh, and then somebody uh, I've got a direct message from someone who talks about the um, the ransom trilogy, which is perhaps I was slightly rude about. But um, this person was, uh, was thought that it was a good book. Um, yes. And talks about the abolition of man, which is one of his more philosophical writings. I probably won't comment too much on that now. Yeah, and I thank you, James, about Planet Narnia. So I'll try and pick up some of those points on Narnia. So let's go. Let's go for for Narnia now. If anyone has any other comments or questions, uh, we'll come to those at the end. So let me go back to screen share. Uh, so there we are. So there's um, if you've seen the the Narnia films, there's uh, Lucy and Mister Tumnus, uh, and. Um, You'll recognise those characters from The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. But uh, so there are there are seven Narnia books. And they're, they're quite brief books. They, um, you, you know, about 100 pages each. Uh, you, you can read one in an evening. You can buy them individually. They were they were originally sold as individual books. But you can. So I but I got a, a collected version of them you can buy them all as one volume and um and by the way one thing i should have said meant to say earlier was that um 
you can get charity shops and public libraries are quite good for C.S. Lewis, I've discovered. I mean, I got this for one ninety nine in a local charity shop at the whole of the Narnia Chronicles. I think people sling them out because they think, well, my kids have grown up, so I don't need them any longer, um, which is sort of missed the point rather. But uh, so you can so public. I know you can't go in charity shops at the moment, but when they do go and have a look out for some C.S. Lewis books. And I've discovered that our public library here uh, has been great uh, for C.S. Lewis and books about C.S. Lewis as well. But um, the books individually are quite short. And if you compare even this, which is all seven, uh, this is probably the same length as, uh, as one Harry Potter book. So people sometimes compare Narnia with Harry Potter, but they're a very different sort of length of book. They're very, they're very concisely written. He packs a lot, of, a lot of story into, you know, a few pages of book. And I actually think, I know these are children's books, but I think they're, they're incredibly rich um, theologically and they get you to, to think about things and obviously you can read them on different levels now what I'm not going to do this evening is to, to tell you know to tell you the story of Narnia uh, you, you need to read the books to do that because Lewis will tell you the story much better than I do but I just want to give you some sort of pointers I suppose as to how to read the books and things that it's worth looking out for now I highlighted the line the witch in the wardrobe here because if you're going to read one book, that's the one to read. It was the first one that Lewis wrote. And then The Magician's Nephew is, in a sense, the prequel. So it, it so chronologically, it comes before it in terms of its setting and sort of explains the background to Narnia. And then the other books sort of flow from that, although even those weren't necessarily quite written in this order, which is the, the chronological order that if you buy them all bound together is what they, they appear in. Um, but what I, what I would say, you, you can read these books at different levels. They are to be enjoyed. They are to be enjoyed by children. They are to be read to your children and grandchildren and godchildren and nephews and nieces and so on. Uh, There's something for all ages. And I think sometimes people think that you, you have to be, you know, you have to be looking out for the hidden meaning the whole time. And I'd say, well, don't worry too much about the hidden meaning. I'm not sure actually that there is so much hidden meaning as people sometimes think about. They're not allegories. You're not supposed to think of every character as having some equivalent in the real world or some equivalent in the Bible or anything like that. They're, they're not allegories. Lewis was very clear about that. They're, they're not allegories. They are their stories. They're stories that, that to try and give you a glimpse on what it's really like to, well, to meet Aslan, really. And they're stories about this, this family of children, the Pevensey children and, and others in their family and others that they come into contact with, who, who go in different ways, and it happens differently during the different books, but in different ways, they go through a sort of different forms of portals into this other world. You know, and obviously, most famously, one was through the back of a wardrobe, but they find other ways of getting from this world into another world. And it's not a world that, you know, you could go on a spaceship to find. It's a world that's sort of in another dimension. And it's this world of Narnia. And Narnia in this world stands for, in a sense, both the whole of that world, but also a particular country within it, a country with kings and queens and so on. And... Uh, so uh, James asked a question in the chat just now. So those of you who are local to Haywards Heath, um, there is a there was a, a guy from this area who who has written a famous book, well, quite famous in Lewis circles, um, trying uh, suggesting that there's a there's a hidden meaning in these seven books and that each book has a, a link to a planet. 
And Lewis, there's, there's nothing in Lewis's writings that ever suggests that he intended this, but there is some evidence in Ward's book. He, it, was quite, it was quite compelling evidence that each, each book sort of has some features of a planet. And, he's, he's to, and he means planets in a sort of the way these planets were seen in mythological and classical literature. Uh, not, he's not meaning literally, you know, one book's you know, like we now know Mars to be from a scientific point of view. He's saying, how were those planets seen? What was their characteristic in ancient literature? And, and how is he trying to uh, represent that, that planet? And, and Ward's view is that Lewis is doing this because he's trying to, you know, there's depths of meaning in these books. And, th- and this is, in a sense, his little joke, that actually, if you think you've found all the meaning, there's another meaning beyond. Personally, I wouldn't bother too much with that unless you're really, you know, if you're really serious about Lewis. I would just enjoy the books for what they are and, and focus on the more obvious things. But uh, I know some of you from this area might, uh, who might know Michael Wall might, might feel a bit differently on that. But that, that's just my sort of personal perspective. Um, there is, if you do want a sort of book about Narnia, uh, let me find it. Uh, so Rowan Williams, previous Archbishop of Canterbury, has written a very good little book, quite an accessible book. Williams is not always an accessible writer, but this book is quite accessible. It's called The Lion's World, uh, A Journey into the Heart of Narnia. And it's only a, it's only a short book. And Lewis brings out some of the sort of... Um, the meanings and and he critiques Lewis a little bit, but he brings out some of the perspectives that we can see in in Narnia. So I think if you were, if I was going to suggest a book um, to read about Narnia, I would I would be inclined to start with with Williams rather than with the with the Michael Ward book. Let me again um, and let me take let's come off screen share for a minute. Uh, so let me again give you some themes and to think some things to look out for. I'm, I'm hoping this evening, I'm hoping what I'm going to do is to inspire you to read C.S. Lewis for yourself, um, or maybe to go back to those books you've had on your shelf for years and thought you'd, you'd sort of, um, you know, you've done and dusted. But um, so I'm giving you pointers, which I'd encourage you to go and read and perhaps have some of these things in the back of your mind. The first thing is that, uh, and, and just this is another point about Lewis, he was very generous with his time. So people, particularly as he became famous, people would write to him from all over the world, uh, with sometimes with sort of pastoral questions, almost treating him as a bit of a sort of agony aunt. And, he, and he'd write back handwritten letters to them. And sometimes he would get letters from children after the Narnia books were published, he'd get letters from children. And they'd, they'd write him with questions. And, some, and quite often they'd say, oh, I think... Uh, Aslan is supposed to be Jesus. Is that right? And, and Lewis would say, yes, absolutely. You're right. Well done for spotting that. And, and sometimes the child would say, but my parents don't think it is. They, they think they think I'm imagining it. And Lewis would say something like in a sort of conspiratorial way, he'd say, yes, well, I'm afraid, you know, grown ups don't always see things as clearly as us, do they? Um, but he was he was very clear that Aslan was intended to be Jesus, but but not. When I say intended to be Jesus, he, what, how he would express it, would he'd say if there was an imaginary world like Narnia, where, which was populated by talking animals, and if that world needed redeeming from you know, sin and selfishness and everything else, and God needed to send um, the second person of the Trinity into that world, what would, that, what would it look like? And, and he's saying, you know, in our world, that was a baby in Bethlehem a human baby in Bethlehem. In that world, it was a lion, a land of a world of talking animals. 
he, he was he sent the lion or that was the that was the way that the son of God appeared in Narnia. So that was the way he was looking at it. He was, wasn't saying Aslan equals Jesus. He's saying, just imagine there was a world like this and imagine it needed saving. And imagine God wanted to, to come himself to break into that world. Then Aslan is is my attempt to portray what, what that would look like. Um, and sometimes uh, I think Lewis tried not to be too overt, but sometimes the marsh very much does slip. There's a passage in uh, towards the end of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader where um, it's just unmistakable that Aslan is Jesus. The echoes of scripture are just I mean, he's, he's, he's described as both a lion and a lamb in the same passage. There's uh, there's this talk about having breakfast on the beach. It's a clear echo of John chapter 21. Um, so sometimes he makes it towards, I think, the end, it becomes increasingly clear that there's a there's a uh, correlation between Aslan and Jesus. But I'm going to read you just some passages now to illustrate um, who Aslan is and what it was like to encounter him. Aslan is, of course, the central character of these books, even though he appears relatively infrequently. He is the one that appears throughout all seven books. So um, just bear with me while I look up the places. So this one is, this is, um, so this is probably the most famous quote about Aslan. This is from The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And the, the Beavers family have been talking to the children about Aslan. And, uh, and Lucy, and Lucy's the perceptive one of the four children. She's the youngest, and she's the one that seems to have her spiritual eyes open. And Lucy says, is he a man? Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the world and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Who said Susan? I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Whoever said anything about being safe, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And, Lisa, and I think um, Lewis was very good there and elsewhere at, at, at capturing the fact that to meet Jesus was to meet somebody both awe-inspiring, but also reassuring. Uh, and I'll give you some other quotes that perhaps illustrate that as well. So here, here's a couple of um, examples of when people met Aslan. Uh, so this is from um, The Magician's Nephew, the first book. And... Um, both the children were looking up into the lion's face as he spoke these words, and all at once, they never knew exactly how it happened. The face seemed to be a sea of tossing gold in which they were floating, and such a sweetness and power rolled about them and over them and entered into them that they felt that they had never been really happy or wise or good or even alive and awake before. And the memory of that moment stayed with them always. So that as long as they both lived, if ever they were sad or afraid or angry, the thought of all that golden goodness and the feeling that it was still there, quite close, just round some corner or just behind some door, would come back and make them sure deep down inside that all was well. Uh, lovely encounter, isn't it? Of the, 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 that experience of Aslan staying with them throughout their lives. Uh, here's another one. Um, this is from the horse and his boy. Um, 
he knew, so this is the boy, he knew the night was over at last. He could see the mane and ears and head of his horse quite easily now. A golden light fell on them from the left. He thought it was the sun. He turned and saw, pacing beside him, taller than the horse, a lion. The horse did not seem afraid of it or else could not see it. It was from the lion that the light came. No one ever saw anything more terrible or beautiful. And if you know the story, uh, he'd been walking some while uh, on his horse through a dark situation. He was very afraid and he knew there was this creature next to him. And it was only afterwards that he realised Aslan had been there walking beside him. But it's interesting to see how characters relate to Aslan. I'm, I'm emphasising this because I think this is, this is the heart of Narnia, uh, people's relationship um, and how they think of Aslan. Just as, of course, the heart of the Christian faith is how we think of and how we relate to Jesus. Uh, so this is the, the incident in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, where Aslan has been, has been sacrificed by the witch on the stone table. Uh, he's been bound there. He's been killed uh, because of, of Eustace's uh, treachery. Uh, but then, of course, amazingly, he comes back to life again. Oh, children, said the lion, I feel my strength coming back to me. Oh, children, catch me if you can. He stood for a second, his eyes very bright, his limbs quivering, lashing himself with his tail. Then he made a leap high over their heads and landed on the other side of the table. Laughing, though she did not know why, Lucy scrambled over it to reach him. Aslam leapt again. A mad chase began. Round and round the hilltop he led them, now hopelessly out of their reach, now letting them almost catch his tail, now diving between them, now tossing them in the air with his huge and beautifully velveted paws and catching them again and now stopping unexpectedly. So that all three of them rolled over together in a happy, laughing heap of fur and arms and legs. It's glorious picture of encountering the risen Aslan and it just being the most marvellous you know, kids dream of what it's like to meet anybody. You know, he's your favourite uncle who's, who's returned and you're just completely confident in his parents, even though he's also this, this roaring lion, I think uh, really cleverly expressed. Um, sorry, I'll, I'll give you a few more. I just think you've, you've come for an evening of C.S. Lewis. You might as well hear some C.S. Lewis. Um, so here's another one. This is from The Voyage of the Dawn Treasure. So this is a more serious encounter. So this is... Um, this is uh, Edmund. So Edmund is, is a, one of the kids who's, who starts off as a real pain in the neck. He's a, he's a baddie. He, he's very sceptical. He doesn't think Narnia even exists. He's a troublemaker. He causes all sorts of problems. He ends up turning into a dragon for reasons I won't, I won't go into. And then he encounters Narnia and, uh, sorry, encounters Aslan. And Aslan has to peel off the layers of dragon from his body. It's a, it's a symbol of sort of, what I suppose as Christians we call sanctification, um, God cleansing us. Uh, let me read you. The very first tear Aslan made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off a sore place, it hurts like bilio, but it is fun to see it coming away. Well, that's a bit graphic, isn't it? But uh, and there are a number of these layers and he's using it as an illustration of what it means for God to purify us, to, to deal with the sin and the badness in our lives. And, and final one uh, for now. Um, what's this one? So this is in the silver chair. Uh, and this is uh, Eustace again. 
and, and again, uh, it's, a, it's a picture of joy, I suppose. Um, yeah, I'll, ju I'll just read you a little brief bit of this. Uh, and so this is um, the children. And he says, he rushed to Aslan and flung his arms as far as they would go around the huge neck. And he gave Aslan the strongest kisses of a king. And Aslan gave him the wild kisses of a lamb. Uh, sorry, of a lion. Uh, the wild kisses, you know, he's expressing intimacy with God um, in quite a daring way, I think. So there are some some tasters of what Narnia says about Aslan and how people encounter him, which I think is really the heart of it. It's a way I think Narnia read properly is a it's a training in, in how to long for something and in, in what to long for, to whom to long for. Um, it's designed to appeal perhaps to those of us who've, you know, we've heard these Bible stories, we've heard these stories so many times in Sunday school and so on, that they've lost their sense of, of joy and significance and emotion. And now Lewis is trying to tell the same story in a very different way and to bring out the extraordinariness of it all. And to, and to realise that actually this is what we've been waiting to hear all our lives. This is a story that all our lives we've been longing to know and to be part of. Right. Uh, time is, uh, oh, we're nearly at half past. So let me go on very quickly. Let me go back to this screen and let me just talk about those seven books again. So in some of his letters, Narnia does explain that each book is supposed to be illustrating a certain thing. So the magician, I won't tell you the whole story. The Magician's Nephew, which is that prequel book, talks about it talks about creation. It was about the creation of Narnia and how evil comes into the world of Narnia. The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is the story about really that Jesus is um, well, Aslan's death and resurrection and is obviously pointing towards Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. The Horse and His Boy is a story about, well, Lewis in his very 1950s way uh, talked about the, the heathen or something like that. But he's, it's talking about somebody who, who comes from a culture which, which knew nothing of Aslan and how somebody in that culture was called and converted. Uh, Prince Caspian is a story about how Aslan had become uh, desolate and corrupt and how God brought faith back and how he used um, these children to bring faith and wholeness back into a society that had, had gone wrong. Uh, the Dawn Treader, the, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, is a story about spiritual life. That's the one with the, the guy having the dragon skin peeled off him. And it's a, it's a journey of faith. And um, there's the, the little mouse, Reepy Cheap, is it, who, who, who eventually says, well, actually, I'm, I'm ready to die now, effectively. He doesn't use that language, but I'm ready uh, to go and meet um, the emperor beyond the seas. Story of spiritual life. The silver chair is a, is a story. Uh, there's, a, there's a wicked witch. Uh, it's a story about people being bound by dark powers and, uh, and finding release from that um, with Aslan's help. And then finally, the last battle is a story of a false Christ, a false Aslan figure, somebody who literally, uh, an, uh, a donkey who puts on a lion's skin and uh, is pretending to be Aslan. It was actually, a, it, was, it wasn't really the donkey that's the villain. It was an ape who was behind it all and, and how they in their end get their, their comeuppance. So those are in, a, in, in summary. But I wouldn't, if, you're, if you've never read them before, I wouldn't be looking out for that too much. I'd just be enjoying the books for what they are. And, and they're definitely books for any age. They're not just books uh, for children. 
let me, uh, I promise we try and finish by um, 7.30. So uh, let me just read you the, the last section of the last of the Narnia Chronicles, because I think I must have, I, I reread these Narnia Chronicles just a few weeks ago and I found it, I found it quite an emotional experience. And at the end of the last book, um, Lewis tries to wrap everything up in a quite remarkable way. And the way he does that is he talks about, he doesn't, he doesn't, he, he tackles it very indirectly, but he talks about the death of the children and of their parents in a, in a train crash. And you think, well, that sounds pretty grim. And yet it's, it's done in the way that actually makes you think death isn't something to be frightened of. Death is something actually that, I, that there's just a way to something that's even better. And um, I suppose I read it in the context of my, my mother having died a year ago and, and experiencing the loss of, of friends and family members over the last few years. And it, it's tremendously encouraging. Um, so with all that said, let me just read you these last words, which, which are quite famous, and I'm sure many of you have heard them before. Um, sorry, just finding the page. Um, so Aslan says, there was a real a railway accident. That thing you see in the distance where your parents seem to be in a train and it's crashing. Um, there was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over, the holidays have begun, the dream is ended, this is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And as for, this is the, and as for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can mostly truly and we can most truly say that they lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And we're left, the reader is left thinking, yes, I want to be part of that story. Uh, I want, to, I want, yes, life in this world has been great up to a point, but I want, I'm ready for the next thing. And I hope, you know, whatever age you are here this evening, um, you can see the relevance of that to all of us. Uh, this is a story that invites us in and portrays the Christian message, I think, in an, in an accurate way, but in a very indirect way, but seeks to engage uh, a lot of Lewis's books engaged with the intellect and the re reason, but these books engage with our emotions and our sense of longing, our sensucht, our, our desire for joy and our knowledge that we were made for more than this. I mean, we all know we're made for more than lockdown, don't we? But uh, compared to compared to normal life on Earth, uh, it, 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 normal life on Earth is going to look like lockdown to compared to what we were made for. And uh, I'd encourage you to read Narnia books and all Lewis's writings with that in mind. So um, our time is up. If you need to go, that's absolutely fine. Uh, if you want to, you can either unmute yourself and, and say something or, or write something in the chat. Uh, as I say, I'll, I'll do my best to, to tackle that. Um, I'm, I'm happy to hang around for a bit, but I realise that uh, some of you may need to go and that's absolutely fine. So um, I'll, I'll pipe down for a bit now and just see if anyone else wants to, to add anything.